You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 445 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. With this show, we're going to pick right back up with our look at what happened in 1863. We looked at July through September last time, so with this show, we'll start off with, yes you guessed it, October. On Saturday, October 3rd, with Rosecrans' army all but trapped at Chattanooga, Union Brigadier General John Beatty takes advantage of a quiet moment to write in his diary, quote, The two armies are lying face to face. The Federal and Confederate sentinels walk their beats inside of each other. The tents of their troops dot the hillsides. Their long lines of campfires almost encompass us but the campfires of the Army of the Cumberland are burning also. Bruised and torn by a two-day's unequal contest, its flags are still up and its men still unwhipped. It has taken its position here and here. By God's help, it will remain. In South Carolina on October 5th, the formidable Union fleet blockading Charleston Harbor becomes painfully aware of a new element in naval warfare when the steam-powered, cigar-shaped Confederate torpedo boat, David, riding so low in the water it can hardly be detected, rams a torpedo into the side of USS New Ironsides. The Union warship, though damaged, is able to remain on station. Meanwhile, David almost succumbs to its own attack, when water, showering in after the explosion, douses its power plant. But the torpedo boat's engineer saves the day, and David escapes. With the draft now in force throughout the North, but without any provision for conscientious objection, some draftees face harsh treatment for their nonviolent beliefs. On October 6th, Vermont Quaker Cyrus Pringle describes his rough handling in a diary entry. Quote, Two sergeants soon called for me, and taking me a little aside, bid me lie down on my back, and stretching my limbs apart, tied cords to my wrist and ankles, and these to four stakes driven in the ground, somewhat in the form of an X. I was very quiet in my mind as I lay there on the ground, soaked with the rain of the previous day, exposed to the heat of the sun, and suffering keenly from the cords binding my wrist and straining my muscles. 
I wept, not so much for my own suffering as from sorrow that such things should be in our own country. On October 8th, an official in the Confederate War Department, Robert Keene, writes in his diary, quote, General Longstreet has written to the Secretary of War a letter which has filled me with concern. He says Bragg has done but one thing he ought to have done since he has been there, and that was the order to attack on September 18th, precipitating the Battle of Chickamauga, and he expressed the opinion that nothing will be effected under Bragg's command. Braxton Bragg has long had contentious relations with his subordinates in the Army of Tennessee, but his actions in the wake of Chickamauga have only worsened the toxic command environment, and Longstreet is emerging as a leader of the anti-Bragg clique of officers. On October 13th, having finished running his campaign from exile in Canada, Copperhead Clement Vallandigham is soundly defeated in the contest for governor of Ohio. Pro-union candidates prevail in other state elections this day as well. The election results are helped by the boost the federal victories at Vicksburg and Gettysburg provided to northern morale. Additionally, there's been widespread sympathy stirred by the anti-black violence during the draft riots in New York City and public recognition of the valor of black soldiers in regiments such as the 54th Massachusetts. So, emancipation, although bitterly condemned by Democrats, has become less controversial to many Northern whites. On October 15th, inventor H.L. Hunley is among eight men who die when the Confederate submarine bearing Hunley's name sinks for the second time during a practice dive in Charleston Harbor. While on his way to Louisville, Kentucky to receive new orders, Ulysses S. Grant meets up with Secretary of War Edwin Stanton in Indianapolis on Saturday, October 17th. Stanton informs Grant that the following day, he will assume command of the newly created Military Division of the Mississippi, encompassing the departments of the Ohio, the Tennessee, and the Cumberland. Stanton allows Grant to choose whether or not to retain William Rosecrans as commander of the Department of the Cumberland. Grant opts to replace Rosecrans with George Thomas, whom he orders to hold Chattanooga at all costs. As Grant sets out on a difficult journey to Chattanooga, he receives Thomas's answer, quote, We will hold the town until we starve. On October 24th, having arrived at Chattanooga the previous night, Ulysses S. Grant, accompanied by George Thomas and a party of staff officers, rides out to inspect the area. That evening, Grant approves a plan to cross the Tennessee River at Browns Ferry, west of town, as part of an operation to open the way to the Federal Supply Depot at Bridgeport, Alabama. The Yankee troops will dub this new supply line into Chattanooga the Cracker Line. From October 27th to November 7th, Chicago hosts the first Sanitary Fair, a multi-state effort to raise money for the U.S. Sanitary Commission, whose mission is to provide care and comfort for sick and wounded federal soldiers. The mayor of Chicago proclaims opening day a holiday, 
and the two-week extravaganza proceeds to draw some 5,000 people a day with their 75-cent tickets admitting them to a veritable wonderland of exhibition areas, food concessions, entertainment, and halls where donated items are offered for sale. The most precious item auctioned, donated by Abraham Lincoln, is the original draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, which sells for $3,000. The buyer, Thomas Bryan, will give the document to another Chicago Sanitary Commission project, the Soldier's Home. This building was built to serve as a hospital for wounded federal soldiers and after the war will become a home for disabled and aged Civil War veterans. Uh, FYI, for those familiar with the story of Mrs. O'Leary's cow, that original draft of the Emancipation Proclamation will be destroyed in 1871 in the Great Chicago Fire, although the soldier's home will survive. On November 2nd, President Lincoln receives an invitation to make a quote-unquote few appropriate remarks at the November 19th dedication of the new National Cemetery at Gettysburg. Despite the short notice, Lincoln accepts the invitation. On November 4th, Braxton Bragg detaches some 15,000 men under James Longstreet and sends them off on an expedition to retake Knoxville. While this move puts a comfortable distance between Bragg and Longstreet, it also weakens the Confederate siege of Chattanooga. On November 5th, at New York City's Academy of Music, a grand ball is held in honor of Russian diplomats and the officers and sailors of the Russian fleet, which arrived in East Coast ports in September, with other vessels docking in San Francisco in October. The United States has enjoyed cordial relations with Imperial Russia for more than a decade. Although the Russian, Atlantic, and Pacific fleets are visiting the U.S. to be well-placed for action, should tensions in Europe over Poland result in war between Russia and France and England, nevertheless the Lincoln administration and the northern public view the visits as a gesture of support for the Union. In December, Secretary of State William H. Seward will write, quote, Russia has our friendship because she always wished us well and leaves us to conduct our affairs as we think best, end quote. Russian warships will remain in American ports through April 1864. On November 6th, having completed the journey to assume his new duties with the unit of United States Colored Troops in Louisiana, Lieutenant Lawrence Van Alstyne formerly a sergeant in the 128th New York, records in his diary what he has seen on a routine day spent organizing his new command, which is Company D, 90th U.S. Colored Infantry, which is comprised of recently liberated slaves. My company was examined, and almost everyone proved to be sound enough for soldiers. A dozen at a time were taken into a tent, where they were stripped and were put through the usual gymnastic performance, after which they were measured for shoes and a uniform, and then another dozen called in. Some of them were scarred from head to foot where they had been whipped. One man's back was nearly all one scar, as if the skin had been chopped up and left to heal in ridges. 
that beat all the anti-slavery sermons ever yet preached. On November 18th, President Lincoln, Secretary of State Seward, and a party from Washington, including Lincoln's two secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay, arrive in Gettysburg. The New York Times will report the town is, quote-unquote, filled to overflowing with people who will attend the dedication of the National Cemetery the following day. The president will stay in the home of David Wills, a local attorney, attorney who has been a moving force behind the establishment of the cemetery and an organizer of the dedication ceremony. The next day, Thursday, November 19th, after making final changes to his remarks, Abraham Lincoln mounts a horse for the short ride to the cemetery. The day's main address is given by Massachusetts statement, statesman, scholar, and orator Edward Everett. Lincoln's secretary, John Hay, will write in his diary, quote, After a little delay, Mr. Everett took his place on the stand, and Mr. Stockton made a prayer which thought it was an oration, and Mr. Everett spoke as he always does, perfectly. Everett's oration is a description of the three-day Battle of Gettysburg, is given from memory, and takes two hours, which seems preposterous to our modern sensibilities, but which is the norm for such speeches back in the day. In any case, when it's time for Lincoln's remarks, he adjusts his spectacles and looks out over the huge crowd and then delivers one of the greatest presidential speeches in American history. In remarks that last about two minutes, he salutes, with ringing eloquence, the thousands who have died so that the United States might have a new birth of freedom. And he calls on all those present to highly resolve that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
On November 22nd, Major General William Tecumseh Sherman arrives at Chattanooga. Sherman is bringing with him some 17,000 veteran troops, along with the formidable U.S. Sanitary Commission nurse, Mother Mary Ann Bickerdyke, who spent most of the march from Mississippi to Chattanooga treating soldiers' feet and their aches, pains, and chills caused by unexpectedly wet and cold weather. With Sherman's arrival, Ulysses S. Grant's preparations to break the rebel siege of Chattanooga are nearly complete. Two days later, on November 24th, Joseph Hooker launches a three-division assault on Lookout Mountain, southwest of Chattanooga. One small Confederate division, commanded by Carter Stevenson, holds the summit, supported by troops on the slopes below. Fog that covers much of Lookout Mountain means this so-called battle above the clouds is heard but not seen by the men in both armies who are nearby, manning the lines outside Chattanooga. The next day, the 25th, the men of George Thomas's Army of the Cumberland perform the miracle of Missionary Ridge when they exceed their orders for a limited frontal assault and sweep Braxton Bragg's Confederates completely off the ridge. Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana, who is an eyewitness to the scene, wires Washington saying, Glory to God, the day is decisively ours. With the Army of the Cumberland's astonishing capture of Missionary Ridge, the siege of Chattanooga is lifted, and for all intents and purposes, the door to Georgia is open to the Federals. A civilian in Mississippi, William DeLay, writes to Governor Charles Clark, protesting an unhappy situation. He says Mississippians who crossed the Tallahatchie River to buy much-needed supplies from Southerners living in a Union-occupied area of the state returned to their side of the river only to have the goods they'd purchased confiscated by Confederate troops. The Confederate military confiscated the goods under a Confederate law allowing the seizure of, quote, estates, property, and effects of alien enemies, end quote. Although the measure clearly doesn't apply in this case, the rebel soldiers, low on supplies themselves, refused to return the goods, even under pressure of legal writs from the local civil authorities. Can the civil law be enforced, delay rights and frustration, or can the military authorities overrule and disregard civil law? This incident is just one example of how, as the war went on, the magnitude of the military and economic challenge confronting the Confederacy led the Davis administration in Richmond to construct a central bureaucracy that controlled diverse elements of the Southern economy and impinged dramatically on people's daily lives. Much to the frustration and anger of many Southerners, the ship of states' rights foundered on the rock of wartime necessity as the central government in Richmond regulated and controlled more and more aspects of business and daily life in the Confederacy. In Virginia, from November 27th to December 2nd, there is some sharp fighting but no full-scale battle as George Meade leads the Army of the Potomac across the Rapidan River in an attempt to surprise Robert E. Lee and turn the Confederates' right flank. But the Federals' slow progress, due in no small part to the ineptness of 3rd Corps Commander William French, 
allows Lee to establish a strong defensive position on the west side of a little creek called Mine Run on the edge of the wilderness. Dismayed by the strength of the rebel fieldworks, Meade calls off his operation and withdraws back across the Rapidan to go into winter quarters. On November 30th, Braxton Bragg sends the first of several messages to Jefferson Davis, calling his defeat at Chattanooga, quote, justly disparaging to me as a commander, end quote. Bragg submits his resignation while also noting that the quote-unquote warfare that his subordinate officers have been carrying on against him, quote, has been carried on successfully and the fruits are bitter. Davis will accept Bragg's resignation, but is left with a dilemma as to who will replace him. The officer in temporary command, William Hardee, doesn't want the job permanently, And so, on December 16th, Davis will order Joe Johnston to assume command of the Army of Tennessee. Though Davis believes Johnston to be the best choice under the circumstances, and the move as a popular one, favored by Secretary of War James Seddon and Robert E. Lee, among others, nevertheless Davis doesn't relish making the appointment. The strained relationship between the president and general goes back to the beginning of the war and means Davis doesn't fully trust Joe Johnston. On December 8th, aware of unrest among some Confederates over Davis administration policies and of the growing agitation for negotiated peace, Abraham Lincoln issues the Proclamation of Amnesty and Reconstruction. Offering pardon and amnesty to any secessionist, with some notable exceptions, who takes an oath of allegiance to the United States and all of its laws and proclamations relating to slavery, Lincoln's document also outlines conditions under which seceded states might rejoin the Union. It becomes known as the 10% Plan, from the stipulation that a rebellious state might form a loyal government and create a constitution that abolishes slavery when one-tenth of its pre-war voting population has taken a loyalty oath to the United States. The 10% plan is the first indication of Lincoln's moderate approach to Reconstruction, which will place him at odds with the more punitively-minded radical Republicans who would like Congress to control Reconstruction and want to treat the seceded states as conquered territories. On December 14th, Abraham Lincoln writes out an amnesty declaration for his sister-in-law, Emily Helm, whose husband was killed fighting for the Confederacy at the Battle of Chickamauga. The amnesty will become effective if and when she signs the oath of loyalty to the United States, but she never does. At the time, Mrs. Helm is staying at the White House, a visit that Emily and the Lincolns hope to keep as private as possible. But as the days go by, the pleasure of having her sister with her moves Mary Lincoln to invite Emily to join the Lincolns as they entertain two friends, General Dan Sickles and Senator Ira Harris. Emily's still strong Confederate pride leads to an argument with the two men, and Sickles snaps at the president, you should not have that rebel in your house. 
The unhappy evening prompts Mrs. Helm to end her visit and Mary to sigh, Oh, Emily, will we ever wake from this hideous nightmare? On December 26, the Free Military School for Applicants for the Command of Colored Troops opens its doors in Philadelphia. The brainchild of Thomas Webster, who has helped raise several black regiments in Pennsylvania, the school has been established to help officer candidates, all white men at this time, but many of them veteran non-commissioned officers of white regiments, to help them pass the rigorous examination required for service as officers in black regiments. Nearly 50% of those who have taken the exam to date have failed. Later dubbed the grandfather of the officer candidate school, the Free Military School will provide a rigorous 30-day course in a variety of subjects. Before it ceases operation in September 1864, a total of 484 of its graduates will pass their examinations. The stringent requirements for officer candidates in the U.S. colored troops will make most of these men among the best prepared military officers in the Army. On December 27th, a grieving Robert E. Lee writes to his wife upon learning of the death the previous day of their daughter-in-law, Charlotte, the wife of their son, Brigadier General W.H.F. Rooney Lee, who is currently a prisoner of war. Quote, it has pleased God to take from us one exceedingly dear to us, and we must be resigned to his holy will. I loved her with the Father's love, and my sorrow is heightened by the thought of the anguish her death will cause our dear son and the poignancy it will give to the bars of his prison. That same day in northern Georgia, having visited the Chickamauga battlefield, Union Brigadier General John Beatty writes in his diary, Today we picked up on the battlefield the skull of a man who had been shot in the head. A little over three months ago, this skull was full of life, hope, and ambition. He who carried it into battle had doubtless mother, sisters, friends. They mourn him now, unless possibly they still hope to hear that he is safe and well. Vain hope. Sun, rain, and crows have united in the work of stripping the flesh from his bones. This is war. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Echoes of Glory, Illustrated Atlas of the Civil War by the editors of Time Life Books. <laughs> you know, we still get asked fairly often about our recommendation for a Civil War atlas, so we thought we'd take the opportunity to put in a plug here for Echoes of Glory by Time Life. It's been our go-to atlas since we started the podcast, and it's still our recommendation whenever someone asks us. It's an ideal resource if you're wanting to follow the course of the war year by year and battle by battle. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon, just like James S., Keith D., William K., Charles U., Pastor Denny, and Roland S. all did this past week. Thanks, guys. 
And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll dive into 1864. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.